Amen. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. Hebrews chapter 1 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you really need one today. So grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you so that you can follow along, study along with us. Last week, we introduced this new study in the book of Hebrews. And before we dive into the text today, I want to remind you of a few things. First, I want to remind you about the theological foundation of this book. The theological foundation is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything. Jesus is better than everything. Specifically in Hebrews, we're going to learn that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant. With its priests, with its sacrifices, with its festivals, with its temple, Jesus is better than all of those things. Secondly, I want to remind you about the cultural context of this book. The cultural context is that life is hard. For the people to whom this letter was written, life is hard. There was persecution and isolation and ostracism and discouragement and disappointment. And because life was hard, there was a temptation to abandon faith in Jesus to go back to what they had always known. There was a temptation to leave walking with Jesus and go back to the old covenant. And so the pastoral application is don't turn away. Even if life gets hard, because Jesus is better, we must not turn away from him. We must not abandon him no matter how hard life gets. And all of this may seem very far from us. All of this may seem distant from us. While our temptation toward apostasy may look different than it did for the people this letter was written to, it is essentially the same. Slowly and subtly, people are drifting away from the faith. Here, slowly and subtly, people are drifting away from the faith, settling back into the life they had lived before they came to know Jesus. We need this book. We need this study. This is going to meet a real need at First Baptist Church right now. We need these warnings, and we need more than anything to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded that he is better than anything. And I want to clarify a little bit of something I I shared last week. I talked a lot about statistics at First Baptist and how people are less and less frequently attending. The same number of people are attending, but they're attending less frequently. And I don't want you to think that what I'm saying is that to walk away from the church necessarily means to walk away from faith in Jesus Christ. Right? I'm not equating the two, but what I do want you to see is that walking away from the church is a dangerous step toward walking away from Jesus altogether. To say, I don't need to be involved in the life of the body of Christ, it's not a quantum leap then to get to, I don't even need to believe in Jesus. I don't even need to walk with Jesus, which is why it concerns me so much. Not because I think in any way that attendance and involvement in the local church saves you, but I do think it is one of the first fruits of salvation. I think it is one of the most noticeable parts of what it looks like to follow Jesus is to be involved in the local church. And so to walk away from the local church, I believe, is a very dangerous thing. Well, this week, we're going to dive into the text. We're going to see a beautifully crafted introduction to this book. Last week was my introduction to Hebrews. This week is the author of Hebrews' introduction to Hebrews. We're going to see that in the Greek language, in the original language this letter was written... Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, one giant sentence. One epic, complicated sentence in Greek. Well constructed. There's even, uh, you, know, you know how preachers sometimes will use the same sound in a sentence? Um, they'll use a lot of uh, particular, 
uh, vowel sounds or consonant sounds. The author of Hebrews does this in the beginning of this letter. If I read it to you in Greek, you would hear that. But he uses the P sound a lot. In fact, every other word in what is the first two verses of our translation starts with a P. And so he's getting people's attention as he begins to explain to them what he's going to talk about in this book. And like any introduction to a, to a book or any introduction to a speech, the author is going to tell the people what he's going to tell them throughout the book. And so in these first four verses, we are going to see some major themes laid out. We're going to see some huge theological ideas laid out. And then for the next several years, perhaps, we're going to study his explanation of those themes. All right, so today we, we may introduce some things that beg some questions in your mind. Because there are so many big ideas to talk about today, we can't treat any one of them exhaustively. And so you may walk away today saying, oh, I want to know, know more about it, what it means that Jesus is the creator of everything. Or maybe you say, I want to know more about what it means that Jesus is the sustainer of everything. Or maybe you say, I want to know more about what it means that Jesus made purification for our sins and then sat down at the right hand of God. Well, if you walk away today saying those things, don't walk away. Come back. Commit yourself to coming back week after week after week and watching as the author then explodes those big ideas and explains them in greater detail as we study through the letter. Okay? So this is all big introduction stuff today as we look at it. So let's read together in Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the word of God. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory. And the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels. As he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray together. Father, we, we want to see Jesus today. We want to consider Jesus today. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus today. We want to see him. So we pray that you will open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive. God, we we pray for an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ in this room today. We want to see him magnified, glorified, exalted. We want to see Jesus powerful to save sinners like me. God, we know know that we can't see Jesus with our own natural eyes. We know that we can't see Jesus by our own efforts. And so we pray that you will continue to be a God who speaks, a God who reveals, a God who shows himself, and that, that you would do it in this place today. Show us your son, Jesus Christ. We beg it, we plead for it, and we ask in his name, amen, amen. All right, so there's a lot today, a whole lot today, and and I hope that we can get through all of this and hope that we can see some of it clearly. And the first thing I want you to see is that God speaks. God speaks. Of this incredibly well-crafted, complex sentence of introduction, the main clause 
with all of these other clauses attached to it, all of these other little phrases supporting it and explaining it, the main clause of verses 1 to 4 is that he has spoken. He has spoken. And I want us to spend a little bit of time today considering that and simply rejoicing over it. That our God is a God who speaks. Our God is not a God who is silent. He is not hidden. He is not reclusive. He speaks. He communicates. He reveals. And the result of this communication, the result of this revelation, is that we can know him. He speaks so that we can know him. He desires that we would know him. He's not a God who stands way off and says, I do things, but I want it to be a secret, and I don't want people to understand me, and I don't want people to know me. Rather, he's a God who does things. He creates, he moves, he saves, and he wants people to know him. He desires this intimate, personal knowledge with him. He communicates, he reveals. Arthur Pink, uh, an old theologian, says, the deity is not speechless. The true and living God, unlike the idols of the heathen, is no dumb being. I love, I love that because I love in the scriptures when there's trash talk about false gods and idols. Do you notice this when you're reading, especially through the Old Testament? Especially in the Psalms, there will be this comment about, oh, those idols made out of wood. The same wood that you, that you cooked your food with, you also made a god out of. And they can't hear you, and they can't speak, and they can't do anything. Right? Don't you love that? Because our God is not like that. It's not made out of a piece of wood that we chopped down out of the forest and carved ourselves. No, he is alive and active. He hears, he knows, and he speaks so that we can know him. Right? So I want you to see that today because that's the big theme of the first part of the introduction is that God speaks. He reveals and we can know him. The second thing I want you to see as we talk through this today is the contrast. One of the things we are going to see over and over and over again in Hebrews is the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. You're going to get bored with this actually. You may think, oh, more, more contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in this contrast of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you will see that it's not as if these two covenants are opposites. All right? It's not as if uh, the author of Hebrews is going to say, the Old Covenant is darkness and the New Covenant is light. The Old Covenant is black and the New Covenant is white. You may be uh, tempted to think that the Old Covenant is bad And the new covenant is good. But that's not the way he's going to contrast the covenants. He's not going to say one is bad and one is good. Rather, he's going to show that there's some consistency, there's some continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. A scholar named Ray Brown says it like this. There is continuity of the old and new testaments. Christ does not break with the great Jewish past. He comes to bring it to fulfillment. Right? So, it's, so it's not as if the Old Covenant is bad and the New Covenant is good. It's that the, it's that the Old Covenant was incomplete. It, it was not full. And the New Covenant fulfills all that was lacking in the Old Covenant. And therefore renders the Old Covenant obsolete. So that's why the pastoral application is encouraging people to cling to Jesus and not turn back to something old, something inferior, something obsolete. You remember I told you last week the story about Braxton's four-wheeler? Remember that? This kid rides this old, nasty four-wheeler down a hill and breaks his arm because of it. His dad had bought him this new four-wheeler. And it was better in every possible way to the old one. And that's why it didn't make any sense for him to be riding the old one that day, right? 
It's not as if when the old one was all that there was, when the old one was all that there was, it was good, right? The kid had a four-wheeler that he could ride on and go places. But when the new one came along, when the new better one that had brakes, when the new one came along, it's ridiculous to go back to the old one. That's the idea of contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now that Jesus has come, Jesus is better in every possible way. Jesus is better in every possible way than the old covenant. Now that the new has come, it's crazy to go back to the old. It's crazy to go back to the inferior, obsolete covenant of the Old Testament because Jesus has come. Does that make a little bit of sense? In this first part of the letter's introduction, you're going to see at least four areas of contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. First, we'll see a contrast in era. The timing of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the past, what it says in the text, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, that's the era, long ago, but now. Here's the contrast. Long ago versus now. There's a difference here. These things are ancient. And when we looked at the Old Testament for 12 weeks here in this room, those things we were talking about were old things. But this news about Jesus is new. This news about Jesus is current, especially for the recipients of this letter originally. And when Jesus came, the last day started. Notice he says, long ago to the fathers in various portions in many ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us of his son. When Jesus came, he introduced the last days. Uh, Arthur Pink says it like this. In conclusion, note how Christ divides history. Everything before pointed toward him. And everything since points back toward him. He is the center of all of God's counsels. I just really like that a lot. And that idea is going to come back up a couple of times today. That Jesus is the center of all of God's counsels. And everything that happened before him was pointing toward him. Was anticipating his arrival. And we saw that for 12 weeks, right? All of that talk from creation to Malachi, all of that was preparing the way for Jesus. So everything in the Old Testament is looking forward to Jesus. And once Jesus comes, everything that happens after that is looking back at him. We even do this with our calendar, don't we? Even the most pagan people do this with their calendar. His arrival is the dividing moment in history. And everything revolves around him. He's the center of it all. So we see a contrast in the era. We see a contrast in the recipients. The old covenant was delivered to our forefathers. Jesus has spoken to us. Jesus has spoken to us. The father has spoken to us through his son. So it's no longer this second-hand information. It is first-hand information. There's also a contrast in the agents. Long ago, he spoke through the prophets. But now he has spoken to us by his son. One scholar said this. He said, Ezekiel, you know who Ezekiel is? He's a crazy prophet. Ezekiel portrayed the glory of God, but Christ reflected the glory of God. Isaiah expounded the nature of God as holy and righteous and merciful, but Christ manifested that truth. Jeremiah described the power of God, but Christ displayed it. You you catch this? Those prophets, they could talk about God. They could explain God. They could try to uh, articulate who God is. But when Jesus came on the scene, he was God. So you could see him. He manifested God in a way that is far better than the prophet's. Now, it's, it's of some value that the prophets speak about God, right? 
We're thankful for the prophets speaking about God, but we are even more thankful that God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So there's a contrast between the era and the recipients and the agents, but then there's also a contrast in the ways he has spoken. In the old days, he spoke in various ways, with commands and exhortations and stories and visions and dreams and mighty acts and breathtaking theophanies, one scholar says, and, and a still small voice. When we read in the Old Testament, God speaks in a million different ways, does he not? But now he's spoken to us one way, by his son, by his son, and we are thankful for that. So what we want to see in this is that Jesus is the culmination, Jesus is the climax of all of God's revelation. All of that that happened in the past was leading to this pinnacle moment in the coming of the Son. R. Kent Hughes says it like this, God has eloquently spoken to us in creation and through his prophets in the Old Testament, but now, most of all, through his awesome eloquence of his Son. We've got to see that Jesus is the climax of God's revelation. Everything was pointing toward him. In fact, that's why we read that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration a while ago. That was not totally disconnected. That has to do with what we're talking about here. Because when Peter and James and John go up on that mountain and they see Jesus transformed and his glory is on display, right? Who else is there? The heaviest hitters in the Old Testament, right? The most prominent prophets and leaders in the Old Testament are there in Moses and Elijah. And when the Father speaks, what does he say? Listen to Moses, he was right. Listen to Elijah, he had it right. Is that what the Father says? No, he says, this is my son. This is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. You listen to him. Not not that those guys didn't have anything good to say, but now that the son has come... That, it doesn't get better than that, right? And the, the response of the apostles at that point was to fall down in fear and in terror. And Jesus comes to them and he picks them up and he says, don't be afraid. And did you catch the very end of it? When they opened their eyes, who was there? Only Jesus alone. That is so redundant, it's not funny. Only Jesus alone was there. Why? Because he's the culmination. He's the climax of God's revelation. All of a sudden, it's not that Moses and Elijah don't matter anymore, but Moses and Elijah, they were there to point us to Jesus. They don't stand on their own. We don't build a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah when Jesus is on the scene. Jesus is better than Moses and Elijah. Oh, come on, just one amen to that one. (laughs) Jesus, Moses and Elijah were good, but Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses and Elijah. So, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author is going to begin to just rejoice and proclaim who Jesus is. He's going to say that he is, he's the culmination of all of God's revelation. He's better than any of the other revelation. They had spoke, God had spoken in a lot of ways, a lot of times in the past, but now he's spoken to us in his son. So the best part of this whole text is what happens next. Because now that we've got Jesus in our sights, we want to think about him. We want to consider him. We want to fix our eyes on him. And the author is going to, going to lay out eight huge ideas about Jesus here. And again, we're not going to get it all today. You're going to have some questions when we leave today, but come back. These questions will be answered as we can continue to study this letter. So look what he says. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Point number one about the son, whom he appointed heir of all things. 
This is the son who is heir of all things. This is an allusion to Psalm chapter 2 verse 8 that says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So the father has appointed the son as the heir and the scope of his inheritance is never ending. It is everything. And as the heir, there are two things Two roles that Jesus fills. One is dignity and one is dominion. Because he's the heir, he deserves respect. Because he's the heir, he deserves honor. And because he's the heir, he has dominion over everything that exists. In fact, this is going to be explained a little bit more later on when he says not only is he the heir of all things, but he's the creator of all things. Not only is everything his inheritance, everything is his creation. So the first thing we learn about Jesus here is that he's the heir of all things. And this puts him at the top of any flow chart. And you're going to see the author tease that out for weeks and weeks to come. Second thing. It says not only is, is the son the one whom he appointed heir of all things, but also through whom he made the world. In other words, Jesus is the agent of creation. We went yesterday, uh, my family did, to Bellsmith Springs. Have you guys been there? It's a pretty awesome place here in the Shawnee National Forest. It's a really, really cool place. My kids learned some new vocabulary words, though, because uh, of the folks that were there. And... Uh, it's all right, though. It's all right. Um, and we were walking back up, and you know there are these steps, these stone steps that come back up uh, to the parking lot. And as we were going up the stairs, Asher was in front of me. And I said kind of innocently, I said, who do you think made these stairs? And Asher goes, Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, well, you're, you're right. I, I, that's not what I was looking for, but you're right. And so when we look around at everything, whether it's these stairs that are in the forest or whatever it is, we need to acknowledge that Jesus made it all. And this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures. In fact, I'll give you uh, several passages. So if you want to write these down, you can write them down and check them out later, but I'll read them to you too. Starting in John's Gospel, verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3 says... All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What's that teach us? Jesus made everything, right? In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 5, it says, For even, and this is a chapter that's about, uh, about the reality or unreality of uh, so-called gods in the world, false gods, and the practical application about whether or not we should eat meat that's been sacrificed to them. Anyway, in the midst of all that, something profound is said. In verse 5 it says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. You catch that? So the Father is overseeing all this, this creation. It says, from whom are all things, the Father from whom are all things, and the Son by whom are all things. So Jesus is the active agent in creation, created everything that exists. Romans chapter 13, I mean chapter 11, verse 33, one of these uh, doxologies in 
Romans. It says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back later? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's good stuff right there. From him, through him, to him, that means it all came from him, that all, it means it all was made by him, and it means it all exists for him, so he gets all the glory for it. It's talking about Jesus. And then Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, speaking of Jesus, and this is very close to what we're looking at today in Hebrews, so pay attention to this. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Right? So first thing we learn is that Jesus is the heir of all things. Second thing we learn is that Jesus made all things. He is the creator of all things. He is the agent of creation. Thirdly, in verse 3, again, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. We're wanting to think about who he is. Third, it says, and he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his, that is the Father's, glory. Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. George Guthrie, whose birthday it is today, said this about this verse. One cannot separate the experience of looking at the brightness of a light from seeing the light itself because they are too closely associated. You get, you get that? If I, said, if I said, look at that glowing orb in the sky, are you looking at the sun or are you looking at the light that is given off by the sun? Yes and yes. You cannot separate the two, right? It is the sun because, he, uh, because it gives forth the light and what we know of the, light, of the sun is because of the light that is revealed. Some translations say he reflects. He reflects God's glory. And I think that's a weak translation. I agree with John MacArthur who says the meaning reflection is not appropriate here. The sun is not just reflecting God's glory. We can do that, right? We as his children can reflect his glory. We can be like a mirror. In fact, maybe that's our job in the world is to be like a mirror. As the glory of God shines down upon us, we shine it back to him in worship and we shine it out to the world in our witness But Jesus does more than that, right? He's not just reflecting the glory of God. He is radiating the glory of God. As MacArthur says, he is God and radiates his own essential glory as God. So Jesus is God, and as God, he is the radiance of God's glory. Okay, look at this next one. This is good. Not only is he the radiance of his glory, he is the exact representation of his nature. I'll show you a picture. Picture on the screen. Maybe. Who's that? That is Chris Winkleman with hair. <laughs> right? I saw this picture on Facebook about a year ago. This is a picture of my mom. And I looked at it, and my wife and all of our family said, that is creepy. <laughs> because I look like that if I had hair, and then we started looking at Mary Beth and realizing it's also a picture of Mary Beth. You catch this? We look a lot alike. There's some strong family resemblance between the three of us. You might say that I am a chip off the old block, right? (laughs) 
And so this picture, as fun as it is to look at, is a very weak illustration. Yeah, it may, may she, it's just kind of squeezed out. She wasn't this, like, <laughs> it needs to be, it's, it's, it's distorted a bit. Which is probably fits the illustration even better. So this picture is a weak illustration. What I want you to see is that Jesus... (laughs) Yes, that is it. Now you see it? That's actually the way the picture is. What what I want you to get from this is that Jesus bears more than family resemblance. This This is the easiest way I could explain it to you, but I want you to know that Jesus bears more than just family resemblance with the Father. N.T. Wright... Scholar says, look at him, and it's like looking in the mirror at God himself. His character is exactly reproduced, plain to see. That's why Jesus, when he has this exchange with Philip, says this in John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus is speaking to all the disciples here. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. You catch this conversation with Jesus? He's saying, listen. I am the exact representation of his being. So much so that when you look at me, you're looking at him. So much so that when you see me, you've seen the Father. And because you know me, you know the Father as well. So in other words, Jesus is God in the flesh, revealing him to the world. This language of exact representation, some of your translations say the exact imprint. The exact imprint. And it's actually from this language of coins. And I read, I read a really interesting story about this, about how before technology was developed to be able to stamp likenesses on coins, before people realized, if I take a harder metal and stamp it onto a softer metal, it will leave an imprint, emperors and kings and rulers would send drawings of themselves to their people. They, they would send sketches of themselves so that, so that everyone would know what their ruler looked like. But when the technology came along that they could stamp like a three, almost 3D image of themselves onto a coin, man, every ruler in the world was pumped about that because now all of a sudden the people aren't relying on these sketches, these two-dimensional sketches to know who their king is. Now all of a sudden they can see what his face looks like and they get a little more detail about who he is. Now, in a similar way, that's what happened with Jesus. That in the Old Covenant, we're we're dealing with two-dimensional sketches. We're dealing with uh, less detail. But when Jesus came, we've got God in the flesh. We've got three-dimensional God in our presence so that when we see him, we see the Father. So that when we see him, hear him, we hear the Father. Does that make a little bit of sense to you? This is a big deal that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. Now, all of this talk is bound to raise some questions about the Trinity. How do we understand the Trinity? Chris, you, you were talking about some complicated issues here about the, the oneness of the Father and Son and about the distinction between the Father and Son. So I want to I introduce something that we'll talk about more and more as the weeks go by. 
I want us to avoid two errors when it comes to thinking about the Trinity. We've got to be careful to avoid these two errors. One error is to confuse the persons of the Trinity too much. To uh, make them so much one that there is no distinction. All right, so we, so we want to see that there is a distinction between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So that's one error on one side that we want to avoid. The other error on the other side is that we don't want to go so much into the oneness. Wait a minute, what did I say that time? We want, <laughs> we want to be careful not to confuse them too much so that there is no difference. And we want to be careful not to separate them so much that there's not oneness, that there's not unity, Okay. Does that make sense? So it's an error on either side. Because over there, you don't have three persons. And over here, you got three gods. And so Wayne Grudem is really helpful in this. Wayne Grudem, a systematic theologian, modern day guy, has said there are three affirmations, three biblical affirmations about the Trinity. And he's right about this. He's right about this. The Bible communicates clearly three big ideas about the Trinity. Number one, God is three persons. We see that throughout the scriptures. We see the Father at work. We see the Son at work. We see the Spirit at work. And sometimes we see them on the scene at the same time. Like the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is going down into the water and coming out. The Spirit is descending as a dove. And the Father is speaking from heaven. So God is three persons, number one. Each person is fully God. It's not as if the Son is one-third God, and the Spirit is one-third God, and the Father is one-third God, and when they get together, it's like the Power Rangers, and they make the one big, uh, you know, powerful thing all together. No, Jesus is 100% God, the Holy Spirit is 100% God, and the Father is 100% God, okay? So, God is three persons, each person is fully God, and third, there is one God. There is one God. And if you make a mistake with any one of those three statements, you've lost the biblical track, you've lost the clear biblical teaching, and you get yourself into a lot of trouble. Now, I want to warn you that there is not an illustration that does this justice. When you talk to people about the Trinity, they want to throw out all kinds of illustrations about this. Well, well, the Trinity is like water. This is maybe the most common one. The Trinity is like water. Because it's water, whether it's in steam form or liquid form or ice form. It's still water. Yeah, that falls a little bit short because it can't be all of those at the same time, right? Like one quantity of water cannot be at the same time steam and water and ice together. So what I want you to, what I want you to hear is there is no human illustration of this because this is not human. There is no finite illustration of what we're talking about here because what we're talking about is infinite, but the Bible is clear. There is one God, God is three persons, and each person is fully God. And I'm just going to take those three affirmations and say, amen, that's what the Bible says, and not try to come up with a four-leaf clover or something to explain it. I'm just going to say this is what the Bible says, and I'll take it at that, okay? We'll talk more about this later. Got to move on. Um, R. Kent Hughes says, the radiant light of God's glory suggests the oneness of the Son and the Father, while perfect copy of his nature maintains distinction from the Father. Uh, Though, as this commentator observes, oneness and distinctiveness are implied in each. So again, we're not going to make either mistake. We're not going to go too far into oneness or too far into distinction. We're going to affirm the three biblical uh, ideas. Number next. (laughs) 
He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is not only creator, he is sustainer of all creation. Notice also that he does this not like Atlas holding the world on his shoulder. He does this by speaking. He does this by the spoken word. He holds everything together. One scholar says the created world that we live in does not run by, quote, laws of nature so that the sun's continued superintendence is dispensed with. The author of Hebrews does not embrace a deistic notion of creation. I'll stop there and say deism is the idea that God is the creator, but like a watchmaker, he put it together, he wound it up, and he walked away. There are a lot of people that functionally live like this, that, yeah, maybe God created everything, but he's not involved in it anymore. Now, this text says not only did Jesus create it, he's intimately involved in everything. He's holding it all together by his word. The universe, this scholar goes on, says, is sustained by the personal and powerful word of the Son so that the created world is dependent on his will for its functioning and preservation. In other words, if Jesus stopped, if Jesus stopped sustaining the world by the power of his word, we would all cease to exist. You know why gravity works all the time? Not because it's an irrefutable law of nature, but because of Jesus. (laughs) You know why we don't fly off the planet into outer space? Because of Jesus. Because he is holding everything together and sustaining it by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Oh, this next one is the best one. It says, when he had made purification of sins... This is the best part, and we're going to spend tons of time talking about this. We spend tons of time talking about this every week. Jesus died on the cross to purify us from our sins. The blood of bulls, the blood of goats could not purify the people from their sins in the Old Covenant. It's just a reminder of their sins in the Old Covenant. But Jesus' blood makes real, true, actual purification. I love Charles Spurgeon because he's not satisfied to say that Jesus' blood makes possible purification. This is what he says. Jesus did not come to do something by which our sins might be purged. That's the word he uses instead of purified. Jesus did not come to do something by which our sins might be purged, but he purged them. He purified us actually, effectively, really, and completely. And we will rejoice over this from from beginning to end in Hebrews, that Jesus made purification for our sins. He's washed us clean with his blood on the inside and on the outside. And then the next one, it says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Two big ideas here, exaltation and completion. Exaltation, it is the the right hand of the majesty is a place of power and authority and respect. Jesus sat down, not on the lazy boy, you know, not on the couch. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Exalted Lord Jesus. Humbled Lord Jesus who came to the earth to die for our sins is now exalted Lord Jesus at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, upholding all things by the word of his power, worthy of worship and honor and praise. That's who Jesus is. The second thing it means is that his work is complete. He made purification for our sins, and he sat down. The author of Hebrews is really going to love this in a few weeks. The old old covenant priests never sat down. They never got to sit down. You know why? Their work was never done. They kill one goat, what do they got to do tomorrow? Got another goat coming tomorrow. (laughs) 
You know, or even I killed one uh, bull today, got another one coming mid-morning, and then another one in the afternoon. Then the, the priests of the Old Covenant were constantly working, constantly doing work because it was never effective. It was never permanent. But Jesus did one thing. He made one sacrifice, and then he sat down because his work was done. The once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is worth getting excited about. All right, this next phrase, we're going to hold off till next week, because although it is part of this first sentence, it actually introduces the first big idea of the letter as a whole, when it says, having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The theme of next week, Jesus is better than the angels. Angels are awesome, but Jesus is better, right? And we can sometimes be infatuated. Sometimes we'd rather have an angel than Jesus. No way. Jesus is better. Okay, that's a lot, right? And raise some questions, but it's good stuff, isn't it? We're thinking about Jesus. We're thinking about who Jesus is, what he has done. And the goal of our study of Hebrews, don't, don't stop, don't check out, please don't check out. This, the goal of our study of Hebrews is to see Jesus more and more clearly every day. So that, in our perspective, Jesus gets bigger and bigger every time we look at him. Gets bigger and bigger every time we look at it. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote these children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in uh, one of the books called Prince Caspian, uh, Lucy, one of the little girls who goes to Narnia through the wardrobe, you know this story a little bit, right? Um, She has an encounter with Aslan, who's the lion who represents Jesus in the stories. And she's a little bit older. She's been away from Narnia for a while, and she comes back to Narnia, and she has this encounter with Aslan. She's just so excited when she sees him, and she runs up and hugs him, and she buries her face in his mane, and and it's just good. But then he kind of rolls over in the story, and she gets a good look at him, and she says this. This is a quote from the book. She says, actually, he, he said, welcome, child. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, she said to him. He said, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. If you don't know the story, this doesn't make any sense at all. But what a great picture that is, right? She comes back and she sees him and she says, well, you're bigger than I remember. Is it because you got older? And he says, no, it's not because I got older. It's because you got older. It's because you got older. Because every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. And I want my life to be like that. And I want the life of this church to be like that. That as we grow, Jesus is bigger in our lives. As we grow in faith, he looks bigger. Every every time we get together for worship and we sing the same thing, it's bigger and more important and more precious to us than it was last time. I want it to be like that. Um, The scholar that, that mentioned that says, Expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. I want our souls to expand, and I want to see Christ expanded in our study of Hebrews. Number one, let's see Jesus. And let's see him bigger next week than we do this week. Let's take some of these big ideas that he is creator and sustainer. He made purification for our sins. He's the heir of all things. And let's let Jesus get bigger in our lives. Number two, application. Right thinking leads to right living. Remember, the problem in Hebrews is these people are tempted to turn away from Jesus and go back to the old covenant. But notice how he approaches the problem. He doesn't start by saying, don't do that. Don't do that. It's dangerous. Don't do that. It'll never work. Don't do that. He doesn't start on the practical level of exhortation. He starts by saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And if we will think rightly about Jesus, we won't want to go back to anything else because we'll know that he's better than everything else. 
And I wonder if much of our life works that way. I wonder if, I wonder if instead of cutting right to the chase of, all right, what do I do about this? I wonder if we spent more time looking at the face of Jesus that the rest of it would all kind of work out. Does that make some sense? We sing a song about this sometimes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. That's true. That's true. That's the way it works. And so rather than just say, how do I turn the lights down? How do I turn the lights down on this trouble that I've got? How about, how do I see Jesus more clearly? I want to preach Jesus to you in Hebrews, and I want you to see him. And I want you to see him as the all-satisfying treasure of your soul so that you would never want to go anywhere else. So that you would never want to abandon him because you've seen him clearly. That's the goal of Hebrews. Right thinking will lead to right living. And then the last application I want you to hear is that Jesus can save you. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it like this. Christ has everything in his hand that is needed in order that he may save you, poor sinner. Look what we just read. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And he is better than the angels. And because of who he is, he can save you. Because of who Jesus is, not just what he has done, but because of who he is, he can save you. So turn to Jesus today and be saved. Let's stand together and pray. God, we, we, I believe that you have answered our prayer from earlier today. You have helped us to see Jesus in the text. But there's going to be a real temptation to walk away from that in the next few moments and to, and to take our eyes off of Jesus and fix them on something else. And God, I pray that we would not do that. I pray that you would not let us do that. That you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who made real purification for our sins. God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. God, I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are in this room today who are dead in their trespasses and sins. I pray that today you will show them Jesus who is able to save them because of who he is, able to save them, able to cleanse them, able to give them hope. I pray that you'll teach them about their sin, You'll teach them about your judgment against sin and you'll point them to Jesus. That they will see Jesus dying on the cross for them as their substitute and that they will respond by repenting of sins and trusting in Christ for salvation. God, I pray for your church. I pray for your church that we'll be like Lucy and that we will see Jesus bigger and bigger every time we encounter him and we'll be amazed at the never-ending glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.